This episode contains details involving the murder of a young child and may be distressing for some. Listener discretion is advised. 13-month-old Zachary Andrew Turner was left in the care of his mother. And it feels like there's a million reasons why he never should have been. Why we should never have come to know Zachary. And why we should not be here talking about him today. Welcome back to the tale of Losing Andrew, Losing Zachary, a California Dreaming multi-part series. If you haven't listened to parts one through four, pause this here and listen to those first and then come back. In part four, we discussed in detail the things going on leading up to Zachary's birth, how his mother was attempting to control all decisions that were being made regarding Zachary's care and his future, should she be sent to trial in the United States for Andrew Bagby's murder. We also went into some of the aftermath in regards to what Child Protective Services did and did not do when it came to the investigation into Shirley and how that had an impact on how this story would end. There's lots of blaming, lots of finger pointing, but there's plenty to go around here in this story. We are going to pick back up starting with the birth of Zachary Turner. Again, much of this information was retrieved from the Turner Review and Investigation from September of 2006 by the Newfoundland and Labrador Child and Youth Advocates Delegates. Zachary Andrew Turner, he was given his father's name as his middle, was born at the Health Sciences Center in St. John's on July 18, 2002. He was in good health. He weighed eight and a half pounds or 3.8 kilograms. His delivery was a little difficult and he was delivered by C-section. And among the first who arrived to see him were his paternal grandparents, Kathleen and David Bagby, and they arrived bearing gifts. Shirley denied them permission to see Zachary. So they left the presence with a staff member and went home. Shirley was discharged on July 21st with Zachary. Her 12-year-old daughter was with her as well. At this time, Shirley's older daughter was still living in Mississauga and her eldest son was on his own with friends in St. John's. Shirley's youngest daughter lived with her father in Portland Creek until April of 2002. Then she resided in St. John's with Shirley from April to November of 2002 then on her own for an extended period of time for the holidays in 2002. She was back in St. John's again from Easter to August of 2003. So things continued to be quite chaotic for the youngest daughter during that period of time. By July 22nd, when Zachary was four days old and a day after Shirley was discharged, a CYFS social worker made a home visit. The main concern, aside from Shirley expressing feelings of emotional trauma, was the Bagbys. They had visited the Health Sciences Center on July 19th, the day after Zachary was born, but Shirley refused to allow them to see Zachary. And this visit was being investigated by the hospital because it was a breach of confidentiality. Obviously, someone told the Bagbys what hospital Shirley was in. Another reason for the visit was because Shirley had threatened to discharge her family law attorney because he had advised her to allow the Bagbys to have access to Zachary because, he said, 
the Bagbys were behaving in a reasonable and rational manner. And a third reason for the visit was Shirley was alleging that the Bagbys may try to get back at her by harming the baby or that they may take the baby to England or to California and not return him. Of course, we all know that these allegations are all made up from Shirley's mind. Shirley also brought up Andrew's estate and the possibility of an officer of the Newfoundland Supreme Court being named trustee to receive or accumulate and hold his property for Zachary's benefit. Though it should be noted that Andrew had no significant estate at the time of his death. The social worker noticed that Shirley's daughter was the one making meals and taking care of Zachary, so she suggested to Shirley that they send a parenting coach for a short period of time, to which Shirley agreed. The coach would be there for two weeks for four hours a day. Now, dreamers, as we weave our way through this case, it's become abundantly clear that Canada has a really comprehensive social services system. And I mean, there's lots of programs in the United States, but I'm fairly certain if Shirley was in this country under these exact circumstances, this would not be happening. She would not be under indictment for murder at home with two of her children being coddled by social workers. She would be in jail. Her youngest daughter would be with her dad. Zachary would be with the Bagbees. And the Department of Social Services would provide all the resources and support for Zachary to the Bagbees. And to me, all of this going on there with Shirley in Canada is just not right. And I cannot for the life of me figure out why nobody could see the best, safest, healthiest, happiest, most loving and nurturing place for Zachary would be with Kathleen and David. Why couldn't they just have told Shirley to buzz off and put that baby where he belonged? I know, I know. Parental rights, family preservation, blah, blah, blah. On July 12, 2002, the social worker who had been assigned to Shirley's case while it was in the assessment stage was getting ready to pass it on to the long-term care services. A case plan and transfer summary had been prepared for the process. The social worker called Shirley to talk about the transfer and to say goodbye, but Shirley was more concerned about the Bagbees. She said that they either had tapped her phone or one of her friends was sharing information with them because they were harassing her and stalking her and that they know way too much information about her. And by July 31st, 2002, Shirley, completely unhappy with her attorney advising her on family law, particularly his positive attitude towards Zachary having access to the Bagbees, Shirley fired him and obtained a new family law attorney. Parenting coaching services were also extended for another two weeks for Shirley, but reduced from four to three hours a day. Social workers visited Shirley's home on August 8, 2002, at which time she signed the case plan for the continuation of family support services on a long-term protection basis. The alternative to this would have been protective intervention services for Shirley's youngest daughter and for Zachary, and this would have included removing Zachary from Shirley's care if approved by the court. CYFS had little evidence to support a protective intervention. So pay no mind to the murder charges Shirley's facing, is that right? The reason they found little evidence to support the alternative 
that would have removed Zachary from Shirley's care is because the board failed to conduct a thorough investigation into her background. And again, never mind those murder charges. When Shirley called the CYFS, and previously I may have been accidentally saying CFYS, so my apologies for mixing up the letters. So when Shirley called the CYFS social worker on August 28, 2002, she reported increasingly accelerated stress for both her and her younger daughter due to the financial requirements for themselves and Zachary. She said that she needed the child benefit adjustment from the Department of Human Resources to purchase a crib for Zachary and a breast pump for feeding him when she was in court for the Bagby's family law proceedings, to which she was the respondent, as well as the extradition committal proceedings in which she was the accused. Shirley needed money for her younger daughter's school supplies as school was about to start. She needed a bus pass to avoid walking with Zachary to her attorney's office, her psychiatrist, and to Fort Townsend to report to the constabulary, which was a condition of her bail. She needed money for a babysitter for Zachary when she was in court and Zachary to be cared for nearby inside the courthouse so she could breastfeed him. And she needed a renewal of Zachary's drug card. And well, I hate to sound like a jerk about this, but how about throwing her ass in jail where she belongs and letting Andrew's grandparents take care of Zachary? Problem solved and money saved. The Bagbys would buy everything for Zachary, all that he needed, including a crib. And I bet you they'd buy the school supplies for the older daughter too. Shirley would need a bus pass. She would need a babysitter. And if she insisted on breastfeeding Zachary, I'm sure arrangements could be made for her to pump for him and the Bagbees would gladly swing by to pick it up. I do understand that everyone here is working under the presumption of innocence, so I get it, but still, it's frustrating. Shirley's stress caused by her inadequate financial situation was discussed in a phone call on August 30th, 2002 from a board community health nurse who had started visits in July of 2002 with Shirley and Zachary. The call was made to the CYFS social worker in charge of keeping tabs on Shirley and her children. The nurse suggested to the social worker that she advocate for Shirley in the area of financial support. She suggested a bus pass would be needed if Shirley were to start attending a weekly breastfeeding support group, which the nurse strongly recommended for Shirley. The social worker agreed to do so and added that she had already obtained approval for a babysitter for Zachary on the days that Shirley was to appear in court. On September 4, 2002, a bus pass was issued and delivered by a CYFS social worker to Shirley during a home visit. Shirley began to express a growing appreciation of the Bagby's help with Zachary, with items such as diapers, baby supplies, toys, and the like. But the social worker did note that Shirley said she would never agree to them having custody of Zachary, regardless of the outcome of the extradition hearing. She said that they were too old to be making this type of commitment to Zachary. She would look at the option of adoption if she were to be extradited rather than consider giving them custody. And honestly, dreamers, I cannot understand why nobody was troubled by Shirley's insistence that the only two people on the planet 
that would move mountains for Zachary are absolutely out of the running for taking custody of him when it comes to the Bagbys. Clearly, this is coming from a place of anger and spite and not at all in the best interest of Zachary. Anyway, Shirley was able to sort out her finances somewhat. She had resolved her claim for the child benefit adjustment. She received a new drug card for Zachary, and she had money to buy clothes and school supplies for her daughter to begin the new school year. The board, CYFS Delivery Management, and the social worker had a meeting on September 12, 2002. By this time, Zachary was two months old. They reached an agreement that if Shirley were to be incarcerated as a result of the extradition committal proceeding, she could make a voluntary care agreement for Zachary by a board-approved caregiver, at least for a short period of time. If Shirley's incarceration were lengthy, the social worker noted a more permanent plan for Zachary would have to be made once more information was known. However, Shirley told a CYFS worker in a September 17, 2002 phone call that the worker made to her that she did not want to proceed any further with the voluntary care agreement at that time. She wanted to postpone meeting prospective caregivers under the CYFS-supported proposed agreement until after the extradition committal hearing was concluded. The Turner Report and Investigation noted that this presented a dilemma for both the CYFS and for Shirley Turner. If no alternate care agreement was already in place in advance of a hearing that could result in her incarceration, what would happen to Zachary? Well, if I had to entertain a theory here, this is just another calculated and manipulative move on Shirley's part to continue to delay the extradition process. If she went into court with an agreement in place, there is literally nothing stopping the court from taking her into custody until she's sent to the United States. But if there is no plan in place, I bet Shirley is banking on the court, having sympathy for her and Zachary and giving her more time to sort through a plan for Zachary's care, thereby not taking her into custody. Again, letting Shirley run the show at her own pace. Stalling, delaying, manipulating. That's how Shirley is at every turn. You've had to have noticed by now. Shirley is doing absolutely nothing to help develop a plan for her son. She is going to jail for a long time, even if she does just go to trial and isn't convicted. It's not going to be an easy process, nor will it be quick. Zachary has to be somewhere with someone and she's doing everything and anything she can to impede the process. During this call, the social worker noted that it seemed as though Shirley's youngest daughter might be under a lot of stress and was acting irritable lately. Shirley stated that she would like her daughter to go back to the counseling that was provided by the CYFS, but she's refusing to go. Shirley said that her daughter wants to go to court for part of the extradition hearing and that one of Zachary's godparents has offered to go with her. Shirley said she consulted with her psychiatrist and he thinks that this would be fine. Now, in the Turner report, there was some doubt expressed as to whether Shirley's psychiatrist would have supported the notion of a 12-year-old attending her mother's extradition proceedings. And even if he did, and it's questionable as if he did or not, 
it would be expected that the court would object to having the child in the courtroom for the proceedings. And when it came to Zachary, Shirley minced no words when she expressed her displeasure with the access visits with Kathleen and David Bagby that was provided to them under the Unified Family Court Consent Order. Following an early visit with the Bagbys in July, Shirley told the social worker that he was very hot and he was crying a lot. Shirley described Zachary as being mauled during the visits and that the visits were only for the benefit of the Bagbys, not for Zachary. So Shirley equated his time spent with the Bagbys as being equivalent to him being mauled by ravenous animals. Then on September 20th, 2002, Shirley told a bored social worker in a phone conversation that Kathleen Bagby was obsessive over seeing Zachary. But then on September 30th, in another phone call conversation, Shirley asked the social worker that she instructed her new family attorney to ask the Bagby's lawyer if they would purchase a crib for Zachary. By the way, the reports from the person who monitored the access periods did not confirm that Zachary was being mauled, so she said. But rather, all she saw were two exuberant Bagby grandparents displaying an abundance of affection towards Zachary. Mauled with buckets of love, I guess, right? I understand why the Bagbys have supervised access. I don't understand why Shirley wasn't limited to supervised and monitored visits either. I mean, who is the one under indictment for murder here? Not the Bagbys, for damn sure. Though I'm fairly certain that Mr. Bagby probably came pretty close at times when it came to his dealings with Shirley. So get this. Shirley's youngest daughter reported to a CYFS social worker during a home visit on September 18, 2002, that she was taking courses in babysitting so she could take care of Zachary when Shirley was gone on her various social activities. This woman never ceases to amaze me with all of the seriously self-centered things that she does, even when it comes to her own kids. How can anyone think Zachary has any kind of priority in this woman's life? On October 2nd, 2002, Shirley continued to insist that a board-approved caregiver, rather than a member of her own family or the Bagbys, should look after Zachary should she be incarcerated. Grudgingly, she prepared to continue to honor the consent order made by the Unified Family Court so that visits between the Bagbys and Zachary could continue but that they would not need to know the location of the approved caregivers. In the meantime, the stress in Shirley's home with her daughter and Zachary was increasing at an alarming rate. And it was evident in an October 4, 2002 phone conversation where Shirley informed a CYFS social worker that the daughter was agreeable to going back to counseling to cope with their stressful circumstances at home, which was made worse by her move from Portland Creek to St. John's, which is a thing Shirley did not have to subject her daughter to. She could have just let things be as they were instead of keeping her living with her after Easter earlier in the year. On October 8th, the social worker took the daughter to resume counseling sessions. So the date was looming over Shirley's head where the Supreme Court Trial Division would decide on the extradition request which would result in her being incarcerated. 
She spoke to CYFS social worker about arrangements for her daughter. If she were taken into custody, she wanted her daughter to continue to live in her apartment to be assisted by her 20-year-old son, who wasn't living too far away in St. John's, if this incarceration were to be short-term. If it was going to be long-term, then she wanted the arrangements to be reviewed, and it may be an option to have her younger daughter returned to live with her dad in Portland Creek. Again, selfish, manipulative, controlling, and nothing is ever in the best interest of Shirley's children. And in the Turner report, it is noted that this whole thing begs the question, who does Shirley think her daughter is going to live with if she's incarcerated for the long term? Her dad, of course. Shirley just has to have the need to feel like she's running things. On October 16, 2002, Shirley, along with Zachary, went with the CYFS social worker to meet with a candidate for caregiving Zachary in the event of her incarceration. The only thing Shirley seemed concerned with is that the caregiver keep Zachary's location secret from the Bagbys if he's placed there. Two days later, in a random phone call to the CYFS worker, Shirley expressed the idea that the case against her was all political since her incarceration, should it happen, is going to have an effect on many future cases. Yeah, honestly, Shirley's case would turn out to be a study on what not to do in future cases, if nothing else. Well, by the end of October of 2002, it seemed as though Shirley's attitude towards the Bagbys began to shift a little bit. There appeared to be two reasons for this. First, Shirley had convinced herself that the Bagbys would not be unfavorable to her if they testified in the trial of the murder charges in Pennsylvania, were she to be extradited. And secondly, the Bagbys continued to be materially generous to Zachary. They did get that crib for him, as well as many other things that he wanted and needed. Again, all to the benefit of Shirley. I think she's beginning to realize that she needs to be on the Bagby's good side. If she's nice to them, maybe they will testify more favorably about her. And when the time comes for them to provide testimony related to the murder of their son, I seriously doubt it, but maybe she's trying to convince herself of that. And of course, the Bagby's have the resources to give Zachary everything that he needs, whereas Shirley is indigent. Her changing perception of the Bagbys impacted her position on Zachary's care if she were to be incarcerated. She told a board social worker during an October 30th home visit, at which Zachary was bright, smiling, and laughing, that she was beginning to question whether placing Zachary with caregivers was the best thing, and how this all will impact him as he gets older, and that it will be important to him to be able to look back when he gets older and understand why certain decisions were made about his care and she wondered if the Bagbys might be able to better care for him. Shirley did express concern that the Bagbys would leave Canada if she placed Zachary with them if she were jailed. But the laws as they were in Newfoundland are very strict, and the Bagbys would be required to make phone calls and visits to Shirley at the jail to ensure her access to Zachary. On November 13, 2002, a year and a week since Andrew Bagby was shot to death in Keystone State Park in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. 
It was the eve of the Supreme Court Trial Division's decision on the extradition committal of Shirley Turner, and to await the decision in turn of Canada's Justice Minister on her extradition. During a home visit on this day, the CYFS social worker discovered that Shirley's daughter had taken the day off from school in order to stay home and spend time with her mom. The daughter said she was feeling nervous about her mother's hearing the next day. The plan was for the daughter to stay home from school the following day, too, to take care of Zachary with the help of an upstairs neighbor while Shirley went to court. Shirley also announced to the social worker during this visit that she and the Bagbees reached an agreement. If she was going to be taken into custody the following day, then the Bagbees could provide care for Zachary. The agreement was made official in a consent order at Unified Family Court. And the next day, on November 14, 2002, Shirley was taken into custody for the extradition. The Bagbees immediately arrived at Shirley's apartment and picked up their grandbaby. Shirley's younger daughter remained in the apartment, pretty much alone, and on November 19th, a social worker initiated arrangements for further counseling of the daughter. The Turner Report talks at length about Shirley's younger daughter throughout, and I don't want to skip over it because she is unique in that she is also a victim of Shirley's. Yet she never wavered in her love for her mom when it is clear to all of us that Shirley did not deserve it nor was the love reciprocated. From November 14, 2002 through January 10, 2003, Shirley was incarcerated at holding facilities in St. John's or at the Newfoundland Labrador Correctional Facility for Women in Clarenville. During this interlude, Zachary was in the care of the Bagbees in St. John's. Until December 18, 2002, Shirley's 12-year-old daughter was in nobody's care. From December 18th to December 24th, she was joined by her half-sister, the one who was living in Ontario. And then after that, she was in the custody of her father in Portland Creek. I'm actually stunned with all the hoopla over Zachary's placement that the daughter was essentially left living on her own in Shirley's apartment for more than a month. She's only 12, and even though she may be wise and capable way beyond her years because of and in spite of Shirley, she should not have been left to her own devices at that age by CYFS, so to me, it was a big risk that they were taking not intervening there or sending her back to her dad's. But that being said, in the Turner Report, a few things were pointed out. In a span of 15 months from September of 2001 to November of 2002, the younger daughter had attended four different schools, one in Deer Lake, one in Portland Creek, and two in St. John's. At the time Shirley was jailed, she was attending the second of two St. John's schools. It was coming up on the end of the semester, and she had midterm exams. She had developed relationships and rapport with children and adults at both the school and in the community. She had developed close friendships, and she was anxious to maintain contact with her mom in Clarenville and it was starting to look like that Shirley was most likely going to be permanently removed from Newfoundland. She visited her mom frequently there, and her little brother Zachary was living close by with the Bagbees. The daughter had neighbors upstairs who were helping to provide support, and her 20-year-old half-brother was also in frequent contact with her, 
sometimes staying over at the apartment with her, other times taking her to his apartment. And, well, according to Section 14K of the Child, Youth, and Family Services Act, a child 12 years up to 16 years who has been left without adequate supervision is not a child in need of protective intervention by CYFS social workers. The workers did see to the adequacy of the younger daughter's living arrangements during that period as she was essentially on her own. A worker who visited the daughter learned that at a November 12th counseling meeting that Kathleen Bagby was periodically taking her on outings and providing her with meals. Which, I mean, again, come on. The Bagbys are like saints here. Seriously, can they adopt me? I'm available. Kidding, but seriously, I love these people. A CYFS social worker spoke to the daughter's older half-brother on November 21st and spoke with a neighbor also on the 21st and visited the daughter again on the 26th, brought her to counseling on the 29th, attempted a home visit on December 3rd, but she wasn't there, tried again and visited her on this next day on December 4th, spoke to the half-brother and checked in on the daughter on December 5th, took her to counseling on December 11th, spoke to her on the phone on December 18th, and also maintained regular contact with both her mother and her father to keep them apprised of the daughter's welfare. However, when the social worker did speak to Shirley about her daughter, she was under the impression that Shirley wasn't worried about the daughter's well-being. She reported that the Bagbys had been wonderful to both Zachary and his half-sister, but was under the impression that Shirley had more of an underlying agenda. No kidding, right? On November 20th, 2002, Shirley told the social worker that everyone was misled by the police who had tunnel vision and they wasted an entire year not looking for Andrew's real killer. In a conversation on November 26th, Shirley expressed her fear that if the daughter were to be sent back to Portland Creek with her dad, her dad would not allow her to call or visit the correctional center. The father did want his daughter brought back to Portland Creek to be with him immediately. He called her on November 19th, just five days after Shirley was remanded to custody, that he wanted her to come back with him. But the daughter had her own plan in mind and told her dad to not bother coming to St. John's that she wouldn't go with him. It is strongly believed that this attitude towards her father may have been the result of Shirley's strong influence over her. And Shirley was concerned that if she were to go back with her dad, that he would interfere with her daughter's ability to come visit her at the correctional facility. In order to alleviate some of the stress on the daughter, the social worker suggested that the father and his wife come to St. John's for a couple of weeks to be close with her, but he said it was impossible. He was in the middle of building a house. His wife was working full-time and taking care of her children from a previous marriage. But then a board counselor saw that the daughter no longer needed therapy sessions after December 11, 2002 that it was believed that she had very good coping skills and a good understanding of the issues and challenges facing her and her family, as well as the strengths that they possess. It is a strong opinion of the authors of the Turner Report that the daughter should have been returned to her father. Like I had said earlier, leaving a 12-year-old alone is a risk. And in the report, it is also noted of being unacceptable. And it became even less acceptable the longer Shirley was incarcerated. The phone service at the apartment was cut off. 
Shirley's income support from the Department of Human Resources had ended, leaving the daughter for periods of time with no money for groceries, that is until the department intervened and issued another income support check. The daughter was missing school. She was alone much of the time in the apartment. Her brother was still busy attending university full-time. All the while, the daughter is living under the crushing stress of knowing her mother was imprisoned and possibly facing extradition to the United States. Her appearance was becoming increasingly disheveled and unkempt, and by the end of November, she was observed regularly using foul language and nobody was supervising her schoolwork to make sure she was keeping up. In hindsight, a few things could have been done differently. There could have been multiple daily visits conducted with the daughter during both the day and night to ensure her well-being, though that could not be guaranteed. They also could have been much more adamant about getting the daughter to return to her father's. And to me, it should not have been up to a 12-year-old. They could have made arrangements for her to take her midterms with the school and have them taken in Portland Creek, and they should have compelled the father to go and get his daughter. As hard as that may have been, it would have been harder on CYFS if something would have happened to the daughter, if she was harmed in any way while living alone in her mother's apartment. And while at the correctional facility, Shirley was pretty much checked out of all of it. No concern about her daughter living alone in her apartment, but when it came to the Bagbees being physically present at all times when Zachary was visiting Shirley at the correctional facility, she took major issue with that. The Bagbees brought Zachary every week from St. John's to Clarenville. That's a two-hour, 188-kilometer, 116-mile one-way trip. In other words, Shirley again was wanting control. She didn't want the Bagbees around during her visits. And if you've seen the documentary, then you know that Zachary showed a strong preference for the Bagbees, not Shirley, during these visits. With Kathleen and David present, Zachary hesitated away from Shirley, reaching out for them. It was clear, and there's even video evidence of it, that Zachary preferred his grandparents over Shirley. I believe there was even one instance where Shirley blurted out, He wants you, so why don't you just take him? or something to that effect. Of course, she wanted the Bagbees away to spare herself the humiliation of her own child rejecting her. Having him alone, he'd have no choice but to be in her arms. And even then, would he continue to resist? I'd say most likely. So to address her concern about the Bagbees' presence during her visits with Zachary, Shirley spoke to an attorney. She spoke to the Child Advocate's Office and to the CYFS, and also hinted that she would attempt to seek the support of politicians. And her efforts were not entirely in vain. In a call a CYFS social worker made to the correctional facility in a November 29th phone call that they did not have any concerns for the care and protection of Zachary when he is alone with his mother. But the correctional facility insisted that the Bagbees be present for the entire duration of the visits with Shirley. Also over this time, the CYFS also paid for and arranged for the younger daughter and Shirley's older daughter to visit their mother at the correctional facility too. Her oldest son came on his own and joined them and they traveled together to see her at the prison. And this visit took place on December 24th. 
So, as we all have heard, Canada has universal health care. Among all of the other perks afforded to its citizens, including Shirley, despite everything. And she, along with her daughter and Zachary, were provided care by a public health nurse while they resided in St. John's. And this nurse, subject to questioning in reviewing the Turner case, was asked about her knowledge of Shirley when she first started visiting her on July 23, 2002, shortly after Zachary's birth. Question. My recollection is, is that the hospital discharge summary following Zachary's birth on July 18th indicated that the public health nurse was aware that Shirley Turner had a previous history of depression. Is that correct? Answer, that's correct. That was on the discharge. So that you would have learned of Shirley Turner's previous history of depression from the summary. Answer, that's right. Did the summary indicate whether the previous history of depression was exclusively related to a postpartum condition or whether it was related to something else or both? Answer. It didn't really specify. It said, you know, history of depression, but it doesn't say if it was either postpartum or it was just known, and I consider it to be just a history of depression. Did you determine the nature and causes of the depression that was indicated in very general terms on the discharge summary, either by interviewing Shirley Turner or by interviewing others? Answer, no. Was there a reason for not delving into the nature of contributing events with regards to the depression? Answer, Shirley did not show signs to me that she was depressed early on, and so I really didn't see the need to phone anyone as to why she was depressed because it wasn't an issue at the time. If the client shows signs of depression at the time of my visits, like if I know if she's not following her drugs or she's not taking her medication properly, then yes, I would immediately call that she be followed by child protection or the psychiatrist. Typically, you would have to rely on the information from the client on the subject of whether or not they were faithfully taking their prescriptions. Answer, yes. And of course, observations. When you undertook the carriage of this matter, you indicated you had a discussion with the community health nurse who had done the intake of Shirley. Did she bring to your attention any special concerns related to this case? Answer, she did not indicate to me that Shirley had a high priority score, that she was showing a lot of needs that I should follow up on. Nothing specific as to whether she was really depressed because she wasn't at the time. Did the issue of focusing on her depression ever arise while you carried the file? Answer, no, it didn't. And I want to make it clear that the main focus is the child and parental issues are secondary. However, if anything significant arose, it would have been in my power to make a referral. You became aware of the fact that at the time Shirley Turner was being treated by a psychiatrist from the discharge record or from what she told you. Answer, not from the discharge, what she told me. And what did you understand was her reason for consulting him? Answer, she never spoke a lot about her interviews with the psychiatrist, only to say that she was seeing him and that he was helping her. Did she ever indicate to you that he was following her for depression? Answer, no, on the contrary. If I know that she's being followed by the psychiatrist on a regular basis, 
and that she is taking her medication. To me, it's a positive thing. Did you look into underlying causes that may have contributed to Shirley Turner's depression, hence her ongoing treatment by the psychiatrist, to ensure that you were providing her with the support that she needed? Answer, I was under the assumption that her depression was all due to the stress that she was under. And if she had shown me some symptoms of being depressed at the time, probably I would have dug into her history more and asked for more information on it. But no, technically, I did not look for anything deeper than that. Did you have any discussion with Shirley Turner surrounding mental health issues or how her psychiatric counseling was going? Answer, yes. We had a few discussions on occasions. And how was it going? How was her treatment going? According to Shirley Turner, her treatment, especially with the psychiatrist, was going really well and she found him to be quite helpful and felt she could call on him whenever she needed. Now, information you learned from Shirley regarding the course of her psychiatric treatment was or was not integrated into your ongoing assessment. Answer, yes, they were. Did you feel that under your policy or in practice, you had any obligation to investigate beyond the information that came to you from child protection and from the other client? Answer, no. Did you have any contacts by phone or in writing with the psychiatrist? Answer, no, I didn't. So, your knowledge of the course of the treatment that the psychiatrist was providing to Shirley was based on information that Shirley herself provided to you? Answer, yes. In your clinical judgment, did you think it was necessary or unnecessary to speak with the psychiatrist, specifically bearing in mind that Shirley Turner was experiencing a considerable amount of stress because of events, especially surrounding criminal justice issues? Answer, no. So, dreamers, you heard that right. The public health nurse treating Shirley did not think it was necessary to speak to her psychiatrist, even though Shirley was facing serious criminal charges. The community health nurse was asked about her acquisition of information generally about Shirley Turner, parent of a young teenager and an infant who was receiving psychiatric care under substantial legal, economic, social, and personal stresses. Question. We have learned on June 18, 2002, a member of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, in a communication with Child Protection, not community health, but Child Protection, expressed concern that Shirley Turner had the potential to harm herself or her child. Of your recollection, was that information, or at least concern, whether it was fact-based or opinion, ever communicated to you? Answer, no, I was not aware. Had it been communicated to you, would you, as a community health nurse, have regarded that as of relevance in a significant way to your service delivery to Shirley and Zachary? Answer, yes. Yes, it would. Did you know anything about the incident or were you told anything about the incident self-reported by Shirley to Child Protective Services that on June 4th, 2003, that she lost control and slapped her daughter? Were you ever brought into the picture on this matter? And dreamers, I will tell you more about this slapping incident in a little bit. But the answer was no, I wasn't. Were there ever any case conferences involving one or more representatives of CYFS 
and yourself to discuss the case? Answer, no, there was no case conference. Was there a reason why no case conference was held? Answer, it is not common for that to happen unless there are real concerns and that is usually at the request of myself or at the request of child protection. If they have concerns, we can help. Question. I take it that CYFS did not suggest to you that there was a need for a case conference? Answer. And not me to them. On reflection, having the benefit of hindsight, do you now feel that a case conference may have been beneficial in terms of assessing the risk involving Shirley Turner as a parent and developing or revisiting the course of treatment and approach to service delivery to her? Answer, on reflection, it probably would have been beneficial to share more information. As for the types of information that might usefully have been shared, would they have included information such as I told you about today as having been expressed by the constabulary to child protection? Answer, yes, or even that she had attempted suicide. That would have been valuable. Shirley had disclosed to her psychiatrist that she had previously attempted suicide. And while she was incarcerated at the correctional facility, she admitted to a lieutenant of having attempted suicide more than once. CYFS was never made aware of this information. As a result of repeated contacts by Shirley with the community health nurse, the nurse saw changes in Shirley's emotional health. Question. Given the fact that Shirley came into the type of professional service you provided as high risk and you followed her for an extended period, did you find that the high risk client situation deteriorated because of issues beyond your control while you were following her? In other words, did she become a higher risk in your professional judgment? Answer, yes. When her anxiety increased, then she was at a higher risk and I would have probably would have liked more time to visit with her. But you couldn't because of what? Answer, caseload. In hindsight, thinking of the Turner case and other cases that you've done, do you feel it could be extremely beneficial, especially the high-risk situation, to have open access to information of each other between the programs? Answer, I think it would. So, dreamers, again, we have another failure here on the part of the system. And you know, these don't seem like massive failures in the moment. Shirley has consistently presented pretty well in talking to all of these individuals about her situation. It is certain that, other than the murder charges, there was nothing truly remarkable going on about Shirley. It's easy to see all of this with the benefit of hindsight. And I'm sure these individual caseworkers are overworked. And in cases like Shirley's, they fall through the cracks. About six weeks before Zachary was born, the Bagbys had their attorney begin the legal proceedings in Unified Family Court to apply for a judicial order for sole physical and legal custody and primary care of Zachary. If not that, then reasonable access to him. In their sworn affidavit, it said, 
We are concerned for the well-being of our unborn grandchild given the current difficulty Shirley Turner is facing and the uncertainty it creates for both her and her unborn child's future. We would also like to provide a stable home for our grandchild. We are cognizant of the unusual and potentially harmful effects that may be occasioned on Shirley's unborn child due to the fact that the child's father had been murdered before his or her birth and that whatever the outcome may be, the child's mother has been charged with murder. The Bagbys also said that they would prefer to raise the child at their home in California, although they are prepared and willing to relocate to Newfoundland to raise their grandchild if that is found to be in his or her best interest. Despite the fact that Shirley had suggested several times that the Bagbys were denying that their son Andrew was the baby's father, that it wasn't true. They stated that they believed they were the grandparents of the unborn baby. The Bagbys filed a second affidavit on the same day requesting authorization for a paternity test to confirm that. On July 19, 2002, the day after Zachary's birth, the Bagbys filed yet another affidavit that stated, given the current difficulties Shirley Turner is facing, and given that she has no notice of our intentions, we fear that there is a real risk that she may attempt to flee the jurisdiction or she may cause the baby to be removed from the jurisdiction. So they requested that the court issue an order that Shirley Turner be prevented from removing the child from St. John's, Newfoundland without an order of this court or the consent of the Bagbys, which is also known as a custody restraining order. The court would not be able to rule on these orders until Shirley herself became aware of them. A fourth application for a judicial order was also filed on July 19th, and this one was filed and heard without having to notify Shirley first. The Bagbys requested that the court make the rare ruling of issuing an interim custody restraining order to continue to remain in force until the Bagbys' application for a custody restraining order had been tried before the court. This order was granted and an interim custody restraining order went into effect on July 19th. 2002. When Shirley was served the interim custody restraining order, she countered that the Bagbys should be similarly restrained. The Bagbys consented to the order on July 23, 2002, and would be subjected to the same custody restraints as Shirley. On August 6, 2002, the hearing for custody of access was heard before the United Family Court, and in the report it said that some family disputes are like Rubik's Cubes without solutions. And the Bagbys versus Shirley Turner was going to be one of those. And the judge presiding was one of the most senior of the sitting justices in the Newfoundland Supreme Court, known for being particularly patient and diplomatic. The Bagbys were asking for two one-hour access visits to Zachary per week. Shirley objected. She was only willing to agree to one hour, and her attorney said it was because since she had a C-section, that Shirley not do anything strenuous during the first six weeks after the pregnancy, that she was breastfeeding the baby, and it would be physically difficult for her to come to the court to have two one-hour visits. That was stipulated in the order if granted, the Bagbys would have to make those visits at the facility at the court. But Shirley's attorney continued, If we look at it from the practical sense, 
How many grandparents do you know who see a baby that's less than three weeks old for more than one hour a week? Further stating that it was asking too much at this stage. Shirley herself even said that her own mother, not residing too far away at the time, hadn't even seen the baby yet. And the reason for that is because of the custody order that Shirley not take Zachary outside of St. John's and that all of this was unfair. Why should the paternal grandparents get to see the grandchild, but not the maternal grandmother? The Bagby's attorney argued their point. One of the reasons why a second visit can't take place is because, according to Shirley, this would be too much of a physical strain. But going to take the baby to see his maternal grandmother would be no more or no less than taking him to see his paternal grandparents. So her argument isn't valid and doesn't know why an additional hour of access to the Bagby's is such a big deal for her. Their attorney also pointed out that Shirley had not filed any affidavit stating that she had any concern or reason to believe that the Bagby's would harm the child or abscond the jurisdiction with him. Things were growing even more tense between the Bagby's and Shirley Turner with every passing day. And then Shirley played her wild card. In the midst of this hearing, Shirley leaned in and whispered to her attorney something in her ear. Then the attorney announced to the court that they have a sworn affidavit from a doctor who has indicated that Kathleen Bagby had threatened to kill Shirley Turner. Of course, there is no evidence to back up this statement. There is no indication that beneath the surface, Kathleen Bagby has homicidal or murderous intentions. The judge said, look, if you guys keep going in this direction, all we are going to end up here with is a whole lot of trouble and grief. By the way, this affidavit that Shirley presented was provided by a very good friend of Shirley's, a fellow med school graduate. The Bagby's attorney objected to the filing of this affidavit unless the person who wrote it appeared in court to be cross-examined as to its accuracy and truthfulness. And that never happened. And again, dreamers, all I think this is is more attempts on Shirley's part to maintain control over everything and not only using Zachary to do so, but to also accuse Mrs. Bagby of making threats against her life. And that is a whole new low for Shirley. But she seems to be just throwing things out there to see what sticks. In the end, the Bagbys were granted one hour of weekly access to Zachary to be taking place at the family court, which would be supervised by a designated person that the Bagbys would have to pay for. They would also have to pay for the taxi that would bring Shirley and Zachary to the court and be subject to a search of themselves and their belongings by an officer before each access visit. And Shirley would not be in the room where the visits with Zachary would take place. And with that, the weekly visits commenced. According to reports filed by the designated supervisors, it was said that the visits with Zachary went very well. The Bagbys interacted with the baby positively, and with them, on every visit, they brought provisions for the baby, including diapers, clothing, even a fancy little suit, toys, and a car seat. And all of it was for Shirley to have and use for Zachary. And it seemed as though Shirley was starting to warm up to the visits a little bit. The access consent order was reviewed on October 31, 2002. 
at which point the Bagbys asked for an additional hour each week, to which Shirley objected. Her reasoning this time was because it would be difficult to schedule and burdensome because Zachary had colic, which was causing him to be fussy during some of the one-hour visits. That he also had doctor's appointments because he had a urinary tract infection, and for the entire visit to take place requires a commitment of three or more hours to prepare, get ready, transport, and feed Zachary, all for the single one-hour visit. Shirley said, Zachary is exclusively breastfed and is fed on demand. As a result, I have to remain at the court during access in order to feed and or comfort him as the need arises. I find this uncomfortable, as I am always cognizant of her conditions of the extradition proceedings that prevents direct contact with the Bagbees. And because they have applied for custody of Zachary, this, in my view, serves to increase the divide between us. Stress can hinder or even interrupt the production of breast milk, and I fear that increased access would increase my own stress levels and same could interfere with my milk production. Zachary has not responded well when milk formula was tried, and I want to continue to breastfeed him for as long as possible. However, the Bagbees got this small victory, and their visits were increased from one to two hours per week but it would take place at Shirley's home instead of the court. Again, with supervision paid for by the Bagbees, and Shirley would need to leave the house during the visits. The Bagbees would also be required to provide Shirley with a cell phone so she could be reached if Zachary needed to be fed or to let her know when the Bagbees were gone. The consent order and the visits with Zachary and the Bagbees continued to be positive experiences without incident. So I'm going to quickly go over Shirley's living and financial situation during her time in Canada following Andrew's murder. Remember, she had flown into Ontario on November 12, 2001. She made her way to Deer Lake, Newfoundland on November 14th, and then to St. John's by the 16th. She supported herself for the most part until January of 2002. After she left her son's apartment on January 5th, 2002, because she was stealing from him and he asked her to move out. She lived in a small studio apartment for about 10 days, and this is when she applied for Department of Human Resources Labor and Employment, or HRLE, for financial assistance. By January 17th, HRLE issued her a short-term financial assistance payment amounting to $806. HRLE would be Shirley's only means of income until August of 2003. Eventually, Shirley was given long-term financial assistance so she would be able to pay for shelter, food, clothing, and other necessities. On occasion, HRLE payments were also made to her to support her two daughters and Zachary, and they were made based on information that Shirley provided herself. With this money, Shirley was able to rent a one-bedroom apartment from January 15, 2002 until March 31, 2002. After that, she got into a bigger apartment starting April 1st, 2002, until she was incarcerated on November 14th, 2002. After she was released on bail on January 15th, 2003, until July 31st, 2003, she rented yet another apartment. There were some overpayments made because Shirley had falsely claimed that her older daughter was living with her 
from March of 2002 until May of 2002. But if you recall, the older daughter only stayed for a couple of days because Shirley had slapped her in the face. Shirley also got some extra money in April of 2002 in the amount of $400 so she can purchase beds for her daughters. But only the younger daughter was living with her at the time. Okay, so let's talk about why it's taking so long to get Shirley sent back to the United States to face the murder charges. She was dealing with a lot of litigation in family court with her second ex-husband, with the Bagbies over Zachary, and the trial court that is attempting to extradite her. The next steps that needed to be taken in the extradition process were the filing and the hearing of the extradition application, and those steps were not proceeding immediately. Even though the Westmoreland County District Attorney's Office responsible for prosecuting Shirley on the murder charges, if and when she was to be surrendered to the United States, there were several reasons for the delays. And it was not without expressions of dismay on both the part of the public in Pennsylvania and Newfoundland that it was taking so long. One of the reasons for the delay, and there's several of them I'm going to go through, but one of the reasons was that the extradition act under which the application was made was a relatively new law and didn't go into effect until June of 1999. A second reason is, is that the extradition proceedings in Canada are infrequent. Therefore, Canada's Department of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada and their legal counsel did not have extensive experience in extradition proceedings under the new act. The Justice Department's legal counsel in Newfoundland, where extradition proceedings are rare, had little history in handling extradition filings. A third reason for the delay was because the murder charges on Shirley were founded on circumstantial evidence. In the absence of direct evidence, no one had actually observed Shirley shoot Andrew, and she did not confess. The task of the Pennsylvania state troopers who were building the case against Shirley was very complex. A fourth reason is that the Extradition Act required Canada's Minister of Justice to take several procedural steps after Shirley's arrest and before hearing the extradition application. A fifth reason is once the written extradition record was received from the United States, Canada's Minister of Justice and his legal counsel in St. John's needed time to analyze the record. A sixth reason was Shirley's pregnancy, and she basically needed to be taken care of before Zachary's birth and for some time after, especially her physical and emotional state following his birth. And lastly, the trial division of Newfoundland, which is required to hear the extradition application, is a very busy court and was already backlogged with cases that came before Andrew's murder and the subsequent extradition request. As a result, a date for the hearing for Shirley's extradition could not be set immediately after her arrest. And if she had not been granted bail, more extraordinary efforts would have been made to expedite the hearing, such as bumping it up ahead of the backlog. The hearing for the application for an extradition committal order to enable Canada's Minister of Justice to decide whether to surrender Shirley to Pennsylvania consisted of consideration of the facts of the case, brief oral evidence, argument of procedural points, an argument on the adequacy of the United States' evidence supporting extradition. So in deciding at that time whether or not to remand Shirley into custody, 
The presiding Chief Justice expressed his view that none of the items of evidence presented in and of themselves clearly identified Shirley as Andrew's killer. But both Canada and United States attorneys argued in the decision to incarcerate that, taken together, these circumstances lead to the inference that Shirley was present in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and at the murder scene at the time of death and was the one who caused the death. And the motive they claim was either jealousy or revenge stemming from their breakup and the knowledge that Andrew was going to date another woman on the evening after Shirley returned to Iowa on November 3rd. Also relied upon was Shirley's conduct following Andrew's murder, including inconsistencies and contradictions in the various statements and stories that she gave or made to various people that she spoke with in the days following Andrew's death, as well as inconsistencies in her statements as to her whereabouts on November 3rd, various inconsistent statements about being pregnant, seeking to terminate, claiming to have miscarried, yet ultimately still carrying their child. Shirley's attorney had argued that the evidence was too flimsy to justify taking her into custody. Andrew's autopsy did not provide a time of death, so Shirley's presence in the Latrobe area could not be pinpointed that would be able to place her with Andrew at the time that he was murdered. Shirley's gun that is said to have had the defect that it ejects live ammunition is unreliable in leaking her to the crime scene in the absence of any evidence as to how unusual or usual this type of malfunction is to occur in a 22 caliber weapon. And as for the empty box of condoms found in Shirley's wastebasket that had been purchased from a Latrobe drugstore, there are plenty of other reasons why Shirley bought those and had them with her when her apartment was searched. As for her inconsistencies, all that also may have reasonable explanations, such as being confused and distraught over learning of Andrew's death, coupled with being accused of being involved in it. Ultimately, Shirley was ordered to be incarcerated, satisfied that a web of circumstances could lead a jury to reasonably draw the inference that the person who caused Andrew Bagby's death was Shirley Turner. She was to be incarcerated while waiting for the Chief Justice to decide on whether to surrender Shirley to the United States. But then Zachary came along in July of 2002. So when it came time for an extradition ruling on October 22, 2002, the Chief Justice did acknowledge his birth three months earlier and that Shirley had been caring for the baby since that time. He noted the surrender of Shirley to the United States may have consequences to the child with respect to his continued care and upbringing by Shirley. So Zachary's welfare became the focus of concern and attention. But no matter. It was decided on November 14, 2002, when Zachary was almost four months old, that his welfare would be in the hands of St. John's Health and Community Services Board. As a result of the extradition committal order, Shirley's interim release that was granted back on December 12, 2001, was canceled and she was taken into custody once again. We are going to end part five here. In part six, we will pick it up from Shirley's interim release being canceled and her taken back into custody on November 14, 2002. 
stay tuned. I did mention on social media that we will be moving this weekend of March 7th and 8th, so the release of the next parts of this series will be somewhat sporadic, so bear with me. And until next time, sweet dreams.